Welcome to Clear and Present. On this podcast, I'm chatting with people I find interesting who are exploring what it's like to exit alcohol culture. I'm Brian Fulcher, and I'm here to learn, be curious, and open. I'm also here to get clear and present, and I'm inviting you to come along for the ride. In this episode, my conversation with my friend Leah included moments of clarity, lots of talk of therapy and sobriety, of course, uh, the use of psilocybin mushrooms, and that alcohol isn't really a social drug. Uh, We also talked about the importance of openly talking about alcohol use and the trouble with continuing to romanticize it, and that there are many paths to healing, including those where some people continue to use other drugs. And I just want to note that in this episode, you know, I'm not a doctor, nor is Leah, and neither of us are endorsing any of these approaches uh, for anybody else but ourselves. These conversations capture a place in time, and hey, I'm open and curious about all perspectives. Well, welcome, Leah. Thanks for being here at Clear and Present. Uh, This is uh, exciting to talk with you and reconnect. Thanks so much for asking me. It's exciting. Can you share a little bit about what brought you to stop drinking? Yeah, I can. Yeah, so my dry date um, is February 6, 2017. Um, But I sort of had been drinking problematically like my whole life um it was never a thing that was well managed by me it was always kind of like messy and upsetting Mm. (laughs) um yeah because I started really young and I just wanted to fit in and uh when I was I don't know 14 15 it was also the zeitgeist of sweet sugary like coolers right yeah so I learned I I I guess I like started to drink beer and then all of these very sweet very hyper consumable drinks were being marketed really heavily to like people basically my age and anyway uh that's not the only reason I drank them but it certainly didn't uh, help it just seemed like that was what you did you got really drunk um in at least in the town that I grew up in Mm-hmm. In rural Alberta, nothing, not disparaging rural Alberta in its entirety, but it's definitely part of the culture. Um, yeah, I grew up in a smallish town in Northern Ontario. So yeah, I under understand that for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so yeah, so I drank to, you know, to blackout all through high school. And then um, I got to university and lived in residence my first year, which is just like a keg stand for eight months. Mm. It's just like ridiculous. Um, then I dropped out of school, took a gap year. I don't know. I, I wasn't calling it that. I went to Australia, which is Canada, but hot <laughs> and, and like, and did the hostel circuit, which is also very drunk. And just like every sort of, every sort of major branch in the road of my life was kind of affected in some way usually profoundly by alcohol and alcohol consumption. So it was just, yeah, for many years, I, the person I went to Australia with, that was in 2001, she ended up quitting drinking in 2004. Her dad was in AA. And so she was sort of hyper attuned to problematic use. Mm -hmm. And so she quit and she, uh, she and I were the same, right? So So you saw, you saw some parallels between what she was doing and you were doing. Oh, drinking wise. Yeah. Kind of, kind (laughs) of. She was much more willing to identify her feelings about it as like insufferable and, and to just see it as a problem. I was like, I'm 25, you know, like this is what 25 year olds do. And I guess I wasn't even quite, I was 23. So I was still in that kind of like liminal phase where it wasn't quite 
like the saddest look yet, but it wasn't great, (laughs) (laughs) but I could rationalize it. So she took me to my first meeting in 2006 and um, it was a breakfast meeting. I remember eating like sausage and eggs with like a horrible hangover as a speaker, like spoke at the front of the room. (laughs) And this was in Australia? No, no, no. This is, we had had come back. So she was living and I would go visit her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so she took me to this AA meeting and I was not convinced about AA at all. I, the speaker was saying things that I was like, oh yeah, shit. (laughs) Meaning you like connected with what the speaker was saying? Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. This AA speaker is sharing about her story. She's also quite young and she's she's talking about the hopelessness and the despair and the self-loathing and all that. I was like, hmm, sausage and eggs you know like just sort of <laughs> trying <laughs> and it's it it sparked a recognition in me but I think it was around 2006 2005 2006 I drank for another dozen years I drank yeah till 2017 so it's just like so you never had a moment of like like I heard uh I was listening to this really great podcast uh where they talked about collecting data and so like having those moments of sobriety where you're collecting data and then drinking again and collecting data well I mean in those 12 years I definitely quit for the last time or like I'm cutting down I'm trying to manage it I'm aware moderating yeah 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 all of those things so 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 many times like there was one time I decided I'm obsessed with the chronological order of my life. So I, I cite a lot of years. It just, it's a thing I do. I apologize. But in 2007. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good <laughs> thing to have. Trying I, to, at least you can remember. <laughs> well, that's, that's it is like, I can't. So I had to go right. back very deliberately, like map out what years things happened because I felt so unfucking hinged from uh, time and space. Uh, so I, I retro retrofitted my <laughs> my memory yeah. um, with record keeping. But uh, yeah, I remember quitting one time and I was on the phone with my friend who had quit in 2004 and she was, she's just like, oh, Lee, I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad that you've realized it's a problem. I really think this is gonna like be a good thing for you. And I was dumping out the alcohol that I had in the house. And, and I think I lasted a day, like a day or two it was um tons of false starts and I didn't see it as collecting data I was not that gentle with myself I really thought I was just hopeless and broken Mm -hmm. and like I couldn't do it it was too hard uh alcohol just filled such a like gaping need in my life and it was my way of managing my very unmanaged anxiety so it just um it served as a very effective anesthetic for as long as it you know Except that, yeah, like alcohol actually can cause anxiety to worsen. Oh, yeah, <laughs> which you, which people don't know, right? Like oh, people yeah. don't have any like understanding because that first experience when you first drink, you know, like it's just like a twenty minute kind of like ah, and then your brain recalibrates and the anxiety shoots up because it's flooding your brain with all of those hormones and chemicals true and the withdrawal is real bad yeah it's, yeah it's the, it's the it anxiety like, takes out takes out all your what's the good stuff dopamine dopamine yeah dopamine levels drop yeah and then it takes more of the alcohol to feel good because yeah. you don't you don't have the right your receptors are all so I'm not a doctor yeah <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, I didn't like uh, what enabled me to quit actually was going through CAMH, being connected with a social worker who referred me to a psychiatrist who finally diagnosed and treated my anxiety. Once my anxiety was managed, that took about a year of therapy and medication. Um, So that started in early 2016. And then in early 2017, I was finally like stable enough to put it down it's not uncommon for people to be drinking to manage an unmanaged, you know, um, mental health issue or, or, um, 
you know, nervous system situation, yeah. like all of those things. Like, you know, for me, it was, you know, unmanaged uh, anxiety and depression, as well as, um, you know, PTSD and um, like all, all of that. Um, and then it's interesting, like, uh, you know, my history goes, you know, back to when I was like quite young. And um, at the time, I was told by a counselor that um, therapy wouldn't work until I cut out the alcohol and the drugs. So I can see you're like, oh my God. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. My therapist gave me an ultimatum, essentially. She basically tricked me into quitting drinking, which was very funny because on my two-year anniversary, I actually had an appointment with her. And I was like, remember that time two years ago when you pretty much, <laughs> like, uh, but yeah, she said, you know, don't come back. We were trying to do trauma therapy. My goal was to do, was to treat the trauma. And she said, it's not actually safe for me to do really focused trauma therapy because you have no coping skills. If you get triggered or re-traumatized, you're just, it's not. Yeah. If you yeah. go out of your window of tolerance, like, right. and, and you're used to using alcohol to maintain that window of tolerance, which actually makes it quite like a lot smaller. <laughs> and uh, for the listeners, we're kind of using our fingers <laughs> to show like how much alcohol shrinks your window of tolerance. But like, yeah, I mean, I think it's like interesting, the interrelationship between therapy and, and um, using alcohol in particular to manage. For me, I was quite young and quite like in uh, a, an acute state to be turned away from support and told to quit and uh, and then finally making the decisions per permanently my like mine was uh, I don't even what, what my date was it was January 1st 2019 so it was just before COVID three months before COVID hit no January so it'd be 2020 really yeah it was three months before COVID COVID hit like quit yeah <laughs> I gotta say I was glad because I remember seeing those lineups to get into the liquor store and that they had made a conscious decision about leaving liquor stores open because they were concerned with people going through withdrawal which I found really telling um how much of an issue it is and I think COVID probably made it worse for so many people. But yeah, I made the permanent decision January 1st, 2020 to like say goodbye. Cause I, for me, I like, I kind of explain it as like, I was collecting all that data. I was having these like longer periods, longer and longer periods of like no alcohol, no drugs, no nothing, where I was kind of having a chance to experience all this stuff for the first time. Like, going out dancing without using anything or uh, going to a party or dating or having sex, like all of those things without a substance was me kind of like going, Oh, like that, that um, I was able to do. It was awkward and weird and, you know, but I didn't like fall apart, you know, and I, I survived it. And then I started like having these experiences of having fun. And then suddenly that tweaked something in my brain where it's like, oh, wait a second, I can have fun without using. That's an interesting new experience. So like, it was that similar to you? Like, were you like, did you, do you remember those moments where you're like, holy crap, like I can actually enjoy my life without substance yeah I mean I still use a shitload of substances you know like mm -hmm. I so as far as life enjoyment is concerned mine is still enhanced by mind-altering drugs mm -hmm. um but my huge relief is not being as messy like being able to remember the night and just being like a together competent adult human being oh my god oh fuck. <laughs> like I love that I would say that I didn't have the 
so my first year was very hard. It was very hard. I was drinking a lot when I quit. It wasn't like I tapered down over time. Mm-hmm. I was still drinking heavily. I would have, I would have, I think the longest I made it in my attempts, I started trying, like my anxiety started stabilizing and I went on a couple really um, ugly benders around the end of 2016. Uh, I remember this uh, because Trump was elected, they oh. both died, Leonard Cohen oh. died and everything was just falling apart around me. I was just like, oh, and I was going through a really bad breakup. So I was like just falling apart and I tried a couple times near the end of 2016. I'm like, alcohol's not making this better. It's making it worse. Um, and each time I would, I don't love the word relapse, but it is useful shorthand. So each time I would drink again, the sort right, of- Have you uh, heard the term re- reoccurrence of use? Oh, no, but I like it. It's elegant. Yeah. yeah. Um my self-loathing would just deepen and broaden into like I I it got it just got so dark when I quit aided by psilocybin mushrooms and so you did did you do like microdosing no I did one Oh, you did like, um, like one of those massive dose situations. No, it was more of a chill time, but I do believe that the plants had like a lot of influence over the permanence of this decision. So yeah, it was, um, it was a Sunday afternoon and I was going to the light festival down at the distillery district with a friend and she wanted to drink some mushroom tea before we went. And I got quite stoned, like more stoned than I expected to, but I had been drinking, like that was my last bender. I started drinking Friday afternoon and I had my last shot of like warm counter vodka, like Sunday afternoon, a couple of days or a couple hours rather before my friend arrived. And so she made us this mushroom tea. I, and it like blasted me in the brain and I was absolutely debilitated with shame and pain. You know what I mean? And like, we went and saw this light festival and I felt like I just could do better. Like mm. I, it was, uh, and my heart, like my heart was just begging me, my, just yeah. begging me. Like I didn't actively want to kill myself, but I wished I was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was that, that day. And then the next, and then I used AA quite heavily in the first year as well, just because I didn't know what the fuck to do with myself. Like I didn't mm. know I had been pouring booze on my emotions for 20 full years. So every feeling and sensation and new relationship dynamic was exciting. Absolutely. And thrilling and fun, but also terrifying and painful because I, like, I was just like feeling all the feelings. Oh, I was like my skin. I had, I was just so raw for that first year. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't date anyone new I took a big break from parties I just was trying to fill my time with like meetings and walking around the city and connecting with friends in a not drunk way and just like figuring out who I was because I really had never met myself um so yeah I mean first sober sober first uh first non-drunk boyfriend first non-drunk breakup uh first really good dance on a dance floor like it it was all like pretty super cool it's like um second puberty second adolescence yeah Yeah, also like I likened it to like removing this heavy gray blanket from my life Mm -hmm. like suddenly color came back you know suddenly I was like oh I can actually enjoy something and then get a good night's sleep and then wake up and see the sunshine and feel this like hope that I had not felt for such a long time because this heavy gray film was over (laughs) everything, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. The sense of aliveness and of, of radiance and just like my spark being like, oh, that's how bright my spark can shine. Like mm. I have no idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
But before you go on, like I am so intrigued by the psilocybin experience Mm. because like um, there's lots of research, uh, you know, kind of happening again. It started a a long time ago, but, um, but I, I had seen a documentary, I think about four years ago about the use of psilocybin and addiction. And then there's like Michael Pollan's new series that's out, how, how to change your mind, I think it's called. Um, and they talk about psilocybin. And I had also kind of been very curious about microdosing, um, just from the perspective of like, you know, changing your chemical balance in your brain. And like, I was really afraid of using antidepressants because they seem to have a load of, of side effects as well. I think it's for me, it was like a lot of fear-based now I didn't actually try microdosing. Like I've done mushrooms, you know, when I was young and then, and then in my twenties and thirties, you know, every once in a while as a special occasion sort of thing. Um, and I do know that, uh, I really loved mushrooms because I didn't get a hangover the next day. Like I felt actually good the next day. And like, I, you know, for the listeners, like I am not saying go out and do mushrooms at all. (laughs) I'm just talking about my own personal experience with them and how they interacted with my brain. Um, and, uh, so I'm just, but I'm really curious about what your experience was. Cause you're like attributing that to that, that moment that things changed and that overwhelming emotional experience or break or whatever, how, how would you describe it? And yeah, catalyst, I think comes to mm. mind. It was sort of a moment where the flood of really just like brutal disappointment and like despair met these, this powerful medicine that wants that. Okay. I sometimes struggle with being perceived as wooey, but I am kind of wooey. But I don't think I don't think that mushrooms are. I think that there is real <clears throat> magic uh, in the messages that you can receive from mm-hmm. the right dose at the right time in the right circumstances. So, like that one, I wasn't lovingly held except by myself. You know, mm-hmm. it was an opportunity. So, like it wasn't was, facilitated. It wasn't yeah. guided in any way. No, yeah. it was. I mean, in depending who you ask, it could have been categorized as irresponsible use, but wasn't a large dose. It was probably a gram or a gram and a half, you know, enough to make me, it was not a microdose by any stretch, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. also not an ego death uh, dose. But um, what I was going to say that I self-censored on account of hippiness <laughs> was that the, mu- the mushrooms wanted me to li- to live. So like when you were talking about this moment, I was like, wow, I wonder if that the same sort of thing had happened to me. Like I didn't like I, I kind of describe it as this. Um, I was reaching for this world that should ha- should be something that I could access and integrate. And I couldn't because there was this block, this inability. And I also had a very strong experience of like, there's got to be something more um, that's there for me in this life. It can't be this merry-go-round of using and so-called partying and so-called fun um, when I wasn't integrating any of it, right? Like it wasn't actually hitting my heart you know, I was not feeling a genuine, deep experience of life. I was separate from my life. I was one step removed. One of the more damaging lies that we are told. And I'll qualify this first by saying that I do believe that drugs are tools for connection. Again, in the right dose, set and setting, and all of that jazz, you know, all of the buzzwords about 
And so, some affect you differently than others, obviously. No, no like, doubt. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. There's no, the, the category of drugs, quote unquote drugs does not, is meaningless. Like uh, yeah. it's, it's. Alcohol is a drug. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. no, no question. No question. <laughs> like dopamine is a drug and that's mm. why I'm addicted to my phone. You know, like it's just, there's, there's tons of, so um, uh, some drugs can help enhance and supplement connection sometimes but drugs used incorrectly alcohol included absolutely all of them and incorrect is also such a subjective meaningless word but you know uh they create a barrier. Uh, they like they don't they don't enhance connection there's sort of like a the law of diminishing returns where you get to a certain point and then it actually impedes it so I don't know. There's no, I think, yeah, I think you're, you're, I agree with you from the perspective of like, I, I personally don't think alcohol um, encourages connection in Ever. any way other than the cultural loaded prescribed lie that we're told like, that alcohol drinks, yeah, the social lubricant or whatever. Yeah. Well, and also that it's harm <laughs> harmless, right? When right. It's, it's a highly addictive substance. It fucks up your brain. And then we're told that only certain people get addicted to this highly addicted substance because they're so somehow different than the general population. Like, like somehow our bodies are like, what, not human? Like, <laughs> So, I mean, I disagree with the term alcoholic. Uh, I don't actually think it's um, a, a valued term from the perspective of like it others, um, people who get in trouble with alcohol when alcohol is like designed to get you hooked. And we live in this world where everybody tells you that there's nothing dangerous about it. And there's nothing um, that is perfectly harmless and it's going to facilitate your life and enhance your life when it actually does the absolute opposite, um, but line the pockets and enhance big alcohols like coffers. So <laughs> like uh, I am, I am nodding vigorously. I, mm -hmm. I agree. I think alcohol, alcohol, while being a drug cannot be lumped in with the drugs of connection. No way. I think that some people, I was arguing with a sommelier once and she was, oh yes. <laughs> I mean, their, their income. Is, yeah. I mean, unless they got into alcohol free alternatives, which are quite interesting and fun and I love them. Yeah. Um, and like, wouldn't it be great if a sommelier actually picked up and started like, you know, kind of uh, romanticizing, uh, you know, like actual, like beautiful, uh, sophisticated drinks um, that don't have an alcohol in it. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And the, the hill she will almost certainly perhaps literally die on um uh was that there it's history it's history it's culture it's thousands of years old it's you know the history we didn't, the, we didn't use alcohol in the way that we use it now thousands no. of years ago <laughs> sweeten it with a ton of sugar and market it to children you know oh, we like, also no, didn't yeah. use it like to yeah. the extent that we do like no, no, no. It, the and and people drank the way they drank I mean, because the water had typhoid in it, yeah, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so it's like uh, it doesn't map. <laughs> yeah, directly. like mead was actually like you know a nutritional supplement, but also the alcohol content was like three percent or something like that. So you'd have to drink a ton of it to actually, you know, get get drunk like distilled you know, liquor or wine, that's 14%, you know, like, it's just not the same. No. The, the cultural history is entrenched. Yes. So that and we believe. Even, <laughs> and I think that was, that's her way around potential cognitive dissonance, you know, mm, like, I yeah, think that yeah. you know, she, like you say, her income's tied to, but no, I'll, alcohol alcohol culture alcohol the alcohol economy big alcohol i am also frequently appalled and angry about 
and the connection oh. to our government. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. That is so it's heavily taxed like in yeah. Canada. Like our government takes, I don't know what, what, like what percentage I haven't looked, but I think it's like a fairly large percentage. The government skims uh, from alcohol, like the LCBOs, the licensed liquor board of Canada or Ontario, I should say. Um, but uh, yeah, the amount of money, like how would you deregulate something like that? I mean, cigarettes is not deregulated, but certainly advertisement is, and they had to, they have to label it with warnings, which alcohol doesn't, it just says, it's your fault if you don't drink responsibly, you know, like, come on, anyway, um, and then, and then it's put behind, you know, closed doors, you know, like, like the, all of it, um, it was meant to discourage people from smoking, because, you know, those doctors that said smoking was great for calming, you know, like we know they're hacks and they were paid by big cigarette, you know, or big tobacco. Same thing with, with uh, big alcohol. There needs to be a ton of um, lobbying groups that will force things to change. And that's a big hill because there were a lot less people smoking than people who drink, right? Oh, right. Uh, I I, I do think, I do think people's attitudes towards alcohol and getting wasted and things are changing. Things are certainly changing, but like not evenly for everybody. But I do think more people are conscious of the harm that alcohol does. And like, I'm an evangelist about it. I'll I'll tell me too. When was the last time you uh, watched a Nancy Meyer movie? Have you ever? Nancy Meyer? Yeah, she sort of, she does a lot of movies with like, It's Complicated was one with Alec Baldwin, I think, and Meryl Streep. Maybe she Mm. did Meryl Streep's often in her movies. There's always incredible kitchens. Anyway, the the last one I went to see was called Book Club. It was terrible. It was about a book club of older women who wanted to reignite their sex lives, which is nothing wrong with that plot. Oh, I know. I watched that. Oh, so was that where they just drank their faces off the whole time? In every scene, there was no scene without some form of alcohol in it. It was really alarming. Yeah. Yeah. Yet nobody was like vomiting the next day or so sick that they couldn't eat breakfast or yeah. 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 It's kind of like Frankie and Grace, where I kind of think like, they're like, what? They're like in their seventies and they're (laughs) drinking like, like, you know, several martinis and nobody's broken a leg. Nobody's like, (laughs) you know, like, like been so, or like nobody suffers from breast cancer. It's a huge risk for women in particular. For women in particular. And then, and then, and then there's a weird disconnect because it's Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin and they're I know. politically inspiring. Uh, so it doesn't, it's incongruous. Well, yeah. Jane Fonda came out and said that she quit drinking, right? Did you like, I didn't yeah. Know that. yeah. So I was like, what? Like she, t- you know, and then I was like, well, she quit drinking, but she was still doing grace. Like why, why didn't she use her influence to like make it a storyline, you know, like it very could have like had so much impact on people if they had shifted it in that way. It does feel overwhelming from, you know, a societal perspective. Um, And I, you know, it's, I'm glad you're, you're calling yourself an evangelist because I also feel that way, but I try to tone it down (laughs) and you don't have to believe in the whole storyline that society is like shoveling at you and I think in many ways that stops us from actually quitting earlier than maybe we could have should have would have benefited from um, if there wasn't that level of pressure and uh, normalization of mass use of a damaging drug yeah, that if it's hurting you and you're suffering because of it, you are weak or broken or you know, I do think that there's a, a label. Lot of, yeah, yeah. I think that there's a lot of, um, I mean, stigmatization of addiction of all kinds, but certainly, you know, I can't count the number of times I heard 
you don't seem to have a problem or it doesn't seem that bad or you know well you got your school I'm just like yeah but I'm miserable (laughs) I wish I was dead yeah (laughs) yeah 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 like inside for me it was like this slow depression that just kept like sliding and sliding and sliding and sliding and then um and feeling really alone with the experience and not feeling like I could talk to somebody about it because if you started talking about your concerns, then immediately either you're met with someone saying you don't have a problem because they're secretly comparing their own use to your (laughs) use and kind of going, well, shit, if I say that they have a problem, that means I have a problem. And so I can't talk to this about this person. So you're left in this really lonely place. And I really want to normalize this idea of like, how about we just talk about drinking because it is like, Uh, so saturated in our society, we need to actually be honest about it and to say, hey, guess what? It's like really shitty for you. And um, it's probably, it's, I think the last time I saw some studies where like alcohol was actually ranked as the number one damaging drug to the individual and society. So the scale was basically uh, the range that's, you know, harmful to the individual. And then the bar got longer because the range of harm to society. So like, you know, the bar was like, and and for our listeners, I've got my, like, you know, I'm doing a big fish caught gesture, like it's, and that's where alcohol lands. But then the next one was like heroin or something. And, And obviously heroin impacts the individual at a higher extent than alcohol, but doesn't impact society to the extent that alcohol does. So because of those two measures, alcohol ranked one and nobody talks about this. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's another reason that they didn't close the liquor stores. They could never in a million years have, it would have been total chaos and anarchy if they had closed the liquor stores in the pandemic, like people would have died more people. Yeah. Alcohol. You you think about the trip and falls, like just yeah. personal injury and then harm to other people like violence alcohol makes people violent car it is, accidents like, car yeah absolutely drunk driving like yeah. there's it goes on and on yeah 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 it goes on and on yet we you know happy hour and you yeah. know uh we continue to like just pretend like it isn't this horrible thing um yeah this horrible monster <laughs> <laughs> um, I also think too, like for me, because I did the AA route when I was in Japan and that, that helped me get through that first, that year, um, that I was alcohol free and, uh, and like you, I went to the, the meetings because it was the only place that I could find other people who weren't drinking. And it gave me a social uh, access to a social life, um, that I didn't have otherwise in, in Tokyo and the, the AA like meetings there were really cool. Like they were like really neat people. They were all adventurers like me and, you know, a totally different kind of scene there in terms of AA and AA structure. Um, but the same messaging of course was a part of it. And it was like that there's something wrong with you, not with this drug, Um, and that you had to figure out what was wrong with you in order to recover from this drug. Um, and, uh, when I came here and I, you know, popped into, uh, atheist groups, um, because I thought maybe if we removed the God thing, that there would be some, you know, uh, chance to kind of hook up and meet with people, not hook up in a sexual way, but like meet people, um, meet friends who didn't drink through those meetings. Uh, But I don't necessarily, like, I mean, I know it, it helps a lot of people for me. It, it, um, it actually wasn't something that was helpful for me because I didn't want to admit that I was powerless. Um, I actually just wanted to like break up with alcohol and make it permanent, not crave after it or lament that I'm, you know, not having the life that I wanted. And, you know, like you often kind of get like people who, you know, are, you know, thinking, oh, you know, those people who can drink 
you know, and like, just take it or leave it. And I think it's just so wonderful. And like that they, um, they are envious of people who could drink. And I'm like, I don't want that. I don't want that because I don't want to see that life or those people as having something more than I have. Like it, I had to completely reprogram my head around alcohol and to actually like dismantle every idea that I had about it um, in any way enhancing my life. Does any of this resonate to you for you at all? I mean, I still, uh, I would say I still sometimes have those twinges of envy. I do. I want to go to the South of France and have a glass of red on a terrace, you know, or I want to go to Russia and have some ice cold, really high quality Russian vodka or go to Tokyo and drink beautiful sake. You know, like I do think aside from the poison in it, it's an interesting flavor experience. But there's also romance about that because you just described some very romantic, um, sensual experiences that I wonder if that's what the craving is as opposed to the actual at the alcohol the what yeah i could just as easily have like a wagyu a beautiful wagyu steak in japan or uh what's a russian food delicacy like i can have other interesting flavor experiences that don't mm-hmm. that don't mess with my head and heart yeah it's um and i and i think that there's still a part of me like i also am undergoing total reprogramming and i it's been five and a half years now and i'm not done like (laughs) um but uh I want to be normal I'm not normal I've never been normal uh normal is not a an adjective that I would use to describe myself but there's some part of me that's just like I just want to be a square who can you know have a beer at the game and or whatever (laughs) do they even exist anyway (laughs) yeah yeah so I don't know there are there there are things that I sort of like long for but there are needs that could be met other ways and so the more experience I get meeting those needs the less envy that I have so yeah I like I can't remember whether it was like Annie Grace or you know some some of the millions of podcasts that I listen to um that kind of like like think that through, like, what is it that you really want? Like, what's the thing behind it that you want? And so like, I feel like that's become this habitual because there are moments like you just described where I'm, I feel like, God, it would be there. And I could just have a conversation with a stranger because I'm sitting in a bar and that's what you do. Like that's a normalized social interaction. That's okay to do. The only thing is you have to drink alcohol in order to have it. So, I mean, I guess you could go and ask for something non-alcoholic and sit at a bar, but that would be so weird and awkward. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I want access to conversation with people and access to serendipitous, you know, joy. And I want that to be easy (laughs) and uh, that I realize, oh, well, in real life, that kind of stuff isn't necessarily easy. Um, And, but there are ways to do it in different, you know, different circumstances and different ways. I think, yeah, the, the shortcut always was the alcohol in the bar and the consequences to that shortcut are like things that I don't want to invite. Yeah, man. Oh man. When the, when the city was sort of waking back up just early stages of reopening, was that this year? I don't know. The last couple of years, the waves, but yeah, one (laughs) of the, one of the ends of one of the waves, um, people were, I was down around queen West and people were sitting on a patio and just really enjoying themselves. It just felt 
I mean, there was a sort of a sense of urgency, like we got to get out and be around each other and like, you know, and then, but also a real sense of warmth that I felt like an outsider from because yeah, because same, I really, and I have thought about that endlessly, like what is actually stopping me from going? Cause other than the moment of ordering that orange juice, nobody gives a shit what you've got in your glass. Yeah, You can still have those conversations. I went to a show alone last night and this woman sitting next to me said, are you by yourself too? And I said, yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Want to hang out? And we did. And oh, it was yeah. So <laughs> yeah. And so, like I didn't have, I didn't even have a drink in my hand. So like it is possible. It's available. It's just the, yeah, the barrier to entry is just slightly higher. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. To be open to taking those risks and, uh, or, or to be open to having those experiences. Yeah. And to be brave enough to go to the movies alone and, you know, do, do all these things alone when, if, if you don't happen to have a bunch of friends who aren't, you know, um, who don't make alcohol center stage. Yeah. So have you found community, um, in other ways? Like what's that look like for you? Well, shoot, I think. Oh, actually, a bunch of my people are away at a sort of like camping and dancing weekend called Boreal right now. And I think the sort of, it sounds sort of counterintuitive, but the dance community and it's sort of, it's not a rave community. It's not a party community, but there were sort of like ecstatic dance became quite important to me. And then just going and dancing it out at a particular bar that has since been closed uh, due to COVID, sadly. But the reason, yeah, the reason that I mentioned Boreal is that it's this weekend and I'm not there this year. It would have been, it, you know, it's five years since my first one. And I met this woman there who was so sincere and alive and like juicy and delightful that I don't know. I knew I wanted her to be my friend. And so we came back to the city and became friends and she introduced me to some of her people and I introduced her to some of mine. And we've made this big unholy sort of like, it's still a community, I would say of of many loose ties, but I have also many close, uh, close loved ones who are in the community now. And like, I could not have done that party as a drunk person because it's on the side, it's on the side of a river I would have for sure hurt myself. Mm. Um, So starting to do the things like those kinds of festivals or mini festivals or whatever promise that kind of freedom. And I would chase it there when I was still drinking, but then I, I was never finding it. Right. I was never finding that connection. And then finally, when I stopped drinking, but continued doing those kinds of activities, I I started meeting my people because their hearts were open and my heart was open and we could actually connect in that way. So I definitely have a beautiful community now and people who actually see me because I let myself be known. Like it's the depth of my connections is no, there's no, no comparison. Yeah. Ah, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I just, um, I think this, you know, the, the whole story of like, yeah, life doesn't automatically become this beautiful thing when you stop drinking alcohol, but (laughs) it, cause it's still hard and, you know, we still have to feel the feelings and that can be really, really difficult. But at the same time, if we're feeling the feelings, it's like you say, like your heart opens and then you have these much deeper, more um, authentic, vulnerable connections with people um, where at least for me, I wasn't, I, I don't think I, well, I mean, I made connections with people but there was that layer, that film that, you know, and also when you said like freedom, right? The idea that now that I'm sober, I'm like, oh, I can like go and do whatever I want to do because I don't have to worry about getting my, you know, booze. I have to keep myself, feel, figure out how to keep myself safe in all of that. Like I can drive wherever I want to drive. I can, you know, go to a festival on the side of a river if I wanted to do that and not worry about falling in. 
right? <laughs> like um, there is this like tremendous freedom, which I think I had a taste of the many times when I was drinking and just like feeling like that's what I desired, you know? So mm-hmm. when I'm fl- on the flip side, I think about that and I think, oh, like drinking alcohol doesn't actually, that shuts things down for me. It closes all these doors for me. So yeah, I don't want to do that again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all the commercials tell you that the Heinekens are going to be what gets you free, but right. It's, it's <laughs> not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, did I, I I'm going to steal a question from uh, another podcast I listened to. It's like, uh, 10% happier. And he always asks at the end of his interviews, is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have asked that you want to share? Oh, mm-hmm. 2022 has been a real meat grinder so far for me. It has been extraordinarily emotional and challenging so far. Um, but like, I love it. I love it. Not that I love drama or, or want to uh, cultivate it. It hasn't been dramatic exactly. Just a lot of big feelings and sort of one thing after the next. And, um, and like, I can feel it all. I have never felt more. (laughs) Oh, here comes some woo. You ready? Uh, Like cosmic, like, yeah, you know, love it plugged in um on uh yeah I talked about my spark before I like I turned 40 in May and feel like I just I'm just cracking open it's it's all super uncomfortable but that my quality of life is so much higher than it ever was before my problems are getting more premium you know those premium problems (laughs) yeah and yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not here to convince anybody not to to ever drink again. Some people think that moderation is the way. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I only say that because like, my God, how many times do you try moderation until you go, right, doesn't work. But anyway, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 no longer interested. Uh constantly having to monitor and have it consume your brain yeah in the in the fight exactly I sort of I gave up I gave up the fight and I found just total spaciousness and total liberation and like I'm just yeah and then I could have cool conversations with like these like (laughs) yeah yeah feels really good so thank you yeah well thank you thanks for taking some time out of your evening to chat about this very, very important subject. And um, I appreciate your time and energy and your uh, vulnerability. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more info about this episode on the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe, rate, and review. And give me a follow on social. I'm at Clear and Present on Instagram.